Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. I'd like to start again by offering a chant. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodhasa it's a melody for the Namotasa that I learned from a bhikkhuni in Canada, Ayamedha Nandi. Some of you may know her. Very beautiful, very beautiful nun. <clears throat> it's very special for me to have the opportunity to share time like this and talk about the Dhamma, it's, uh, it's one of the blessings that the Buddha pointed to in the Mangala Sutta. He says, Kalena Dhamma Savanang and Kalena Dhamma Sakkacca, which is the timely hearing of the Dhamma and the timely discussion of the Dhamma. These are among the highest blessings. Last night, Rebecca spoke so beautifully about, uh, about the heart, about Brahma-vihara practice as as a protection and about the strength of a gentle heart and tonight i'd like to continue talking about the heart uh, but about another aspect of the heart that's often overlooked or easily over easily ignored here uh, in the west and particularly in, in our vipassana tradition many of us i think are drawn to dhamma practice to meditation or to buddhism uh, because it speaks to some of our pragmatic sensibilities or maybe our rational worldview. And there's a sense that there's a path that's very concrete. There's things that we can do, and over time we can see results. And there's also this um, kind of scientific flavor. One of the epithets of the Dhamma is ehi pasiko, which means come and see. It's like, check it out. You know, there's nothing, we're not being asked to believe anything. And for some of us, this can be a relief if we're coming from a Judeo-Christian tradition that we haven't quite connected with. You don't have to sign up for every anything. And, and there are these clear conceptual maps that make sense, that we can follow. <clears throat> but if you haven't noticed, it doesn't always unfold so clearly, right? <laughs> As all the maps. And sometimes what this can lead to is uh, that our practice can get very heady, very analytical. 
When you're thinking of all of the lists, the five foundations and the four foundations and the five aggregates, the six sense bases. And um, over time, especially on a long retreat, things can get very dry. We can literally lose hearts. We don't have the juice to keep going. Or uh, we lose connection with our motivation, why we're really doing this, what drew, what drew us here. This can happen on retreats. It can happen in our daily practice. So Brian spoke earlier this week about bodhicitta, about one of the motivations we can have in our practice. And this is one way that we connect with the heart. In our tradition, we speak a lot about the Brahma-viharas, this whole realm of the heart, the different facets of kindness and compassion, of joy and equanimity. We talk a lot about gratitude and generosity, their relationship, about contentment. These are all important aspects of the path, yet there's another whole dimension to the heart in this path to liberation. And sometimes we don't really offer a lot of instruction on how to practice with it. And yet, from what I can see and understand, it's pretty indispensable. And it's a huge component of the practice in Asia and in the teachings, and this is the realm of devotion. Unfortunately, we have Greg here with us, who's been carrying the torch of devotion in our evening sittings with beautiful chanting. So I'd like to talk tonight about this aspect of practice, all of the facets of this, this realm of the heart. There's a whole range of words in Pali that refer to devotion and all the various shades of meaning that it can take. And just see as I start to talk about it, how you respond. We all have different responses to the connotations of a word. So when you hear that word devotion, what happens? What happens inside? So I'll I'll say some of the words in Pali and some of their English translations and just see the effect. You know, notice what you connect with, what you resonate with, what you pull away from, what you feel like, no, that's, that's not something I'm interested in. So namo. When we chant the homage, namo tasa. Namo means to honor, to praise. Sadha is most often translated as faith, but it also means aspiration or confidence, an inner confidence, an inner trust. Garavo, which means reverence or respect. Anu-yoga or ayoga, which means to be devoted to, to be bound to something, to be yoked to something. And atapi, which means ardor or zeal, enthusiasm, sincerity. So all of these are aspects of devotion. So before I kind of launch into this, I want to make a little disclaimer, which is, which is that with all of these talks, you know, if something doesn't speak to you, that's okay. So I'm going to wax poetic about devotion for the next 40 minutes or so. And, you know, it might not resonate with you or, or you might think, oh, that's great, but I can't do it. And so watch out for that doubting voice that comes in that says, oh, you know, last week Oren spoke about embodiment and how important it is and I can't feel my body. And now he's talking about devotion and I have to be devoted, but I'm not and I'll never get anywhere, you know. I used to sit in this room on three-month retreats and 
hear these, you know, vast inspiring talks and sometimes I would leave so, so depressed. <laughs> I felt like this is, I just can't do it, you know, it's too much, too much, too big. So just watch out for that as you listen, if that comes up at all. So I'd like to speak about devotion in several ways. There's, there's sort of an outer meaning and an outer practice, and then there's an inner meaning and an inner practice of devotion. So the Buddha actually spoke quite a lot about the importance of having a relationship with something that we hold as sacred, as worthy of respect or reverence. So there's this beautiful story after his enlightenment. He spent seven days just kind of enjoying the bliss of his liberation. And it's said that he moved around from one tree to the next, who'd kind of sit under this tree and just, just enjoy. And then walk over and see what it's like under that other tree and just sit there for a while. And, and over, the, over this period of time, just these various things occurred to him. He had the insights into dependent origination. And so just picture it, he's just had this tremendous realization and one of the things that occurs to him, he says, he tells the story of how he was dwelling under this tree after his enlightenment. And he says, and the thought, the reflection occurred to me, one dwells unhappily who lives without reverence and deference. But what monk or Brahmin is there under whom I could dwell in dependence, honoring and respecting him? And then he kind of goes through and he says, well, let's see, my sila is pure and I don't see anyone in the whole world whose sila is more pure than mine. My samadhi, my concentration, my wisdom, my liberation, I don't see, none of them are incomplete and I don't see anyone who's surpassed them in me. So who can I, who can I revere? Who can I live in dependence on? And then he says, but there is this dhamma discovered by me. Let me then honor, respect, and dwell in dependence on this Dhamma to which I have become fully enlightened. So I think this is a very powerful statement to think about a being that's awakened fully. And one of the things that occurs is it would be really good to have something to revere, to have a relationship of respect and devotion to. I think that this reflects a deep understanding both of what brings happiness and well-being and of the human mind and heart of some fundamental need for connection spiritually that we have. Yet in our world today, I think that there's a pervasive sense of emptiness. There's a kind of spiritual hunger that, that many of us can feel that's a loss of the sacred. It's either through disillusion with organized religion or through a sense of it not applying to our lives, it not being relevant, or through materialism. Everything gets reduced to something scientific that we can understand. Or, or cultural relativism. Everything's sort of the same, you know? It's all just a different perspective. It's all relative. And then everything becomes flat. Nothing actually becomes worthy of respect anymore. So in the absence of the sacred, what do we end up being devoted to? And again, the Buddha spoke to this in the very first teaching he gave. 
in the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, he says, bhikkhus, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth. Which two? Being devoted, being bound to sensual happiness and sense pleasures. Being devoted, being bound to self-mortification. Avoiding both of the extremes, the middle way realized by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision and knowledge, leads to peace and self-awakening and Nibbana. This is what should be followed. So how does this show up today? You know, our pursuit of pleasure, of gratification, all of the marketing of seeking sense pleasure, seeking comfort in experience. Or our modern form of self-mortification, we don't lie on beds of nails, but the kind of self-judgment or doubt or loathing that we can experience. These extremes that we, we end up being devoted to unconsciously. Or ambition. Do we revere ambition, accomplishment? You know, our sense of self-worth gets, gets tied to what we, what we can accomplish our image, our name, our reputation. There's a very interesting connection here in the language. Namo, to honor, to praise, is connected to the Latin nomen, for name or reputation. So we can see how this honoring has has moved so far from the sacred to honoring the sense of our self-image or our reputation, our job, our profession. We're devoted to time, to efficiency, to productivity. I have a good friend who has a a very good health blog and one of his blog posts, the title was How to Be Insanely Productive Without Destroying Your Health. It's actually a very good posting, but one questions, why do we want to be insanely productive? What is it we're so devoted to about that? Or money? Or our screens, all of our devices, and what's that about? about access, about information, about instant gratification, about distance, right? About being able to be engaged, but from a distance. We don't actually have to feel anything. We can, we can look on from a distance. It's happening over there on the other side of that screen. So the Buddha wakes up and he says, geez, it'd be really good to have something to revere, to feel devoted to. He begins teaching and he says, don't be de- devoted to these things. And then also, after his enlightenment, when he's sitting under the trees in Uruvela, he has this other thought occur to him. It says in the Samyutta Nikaya, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Uruvela on the bank of the river Naranjara at the foot of the goat herd's banyan tree, just after he had become enlightened. So he's hanging out under this other tree now. <laughs> That's great. Then, while the Blessed One was alone in seclusion, A reflection arose in his mind thus. There are these five faculties. When developed and cultivated, when fully developed, merge in the deathless, reach to the deathless, have the deathless as their final goal. Which five? The faculty of faith, of energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So these are the five indriya. This word indriya, sometimes translated as the spiritual friends. Indriya means means a certain faculty, like 
the, the other indriya are like the faculty of seeing, the eye faculty, the ear faculty. So these are innate. We have an innate sense of faith, of devotion. And the Buddha is saying when this is fully developed, along with the other five indriya, it merges in the deathless. And the first of these is faith because faith is the entry to the path. It's the beginning. In the suttas, there's this phrase also that one has confidence in the Buddha, in his awakening and his purity. Why is this so important? I think because, because sadha, aspiration, it connects us with the sense of possibility. The sense of there's something better here for me. We need to recognize the possibility of awakening to even be willing to make effort, right? If we don't have any sense that there's anything worthwhile in life, anything greater, anything beyond, why try? So this aspect of devotion, faith, is the entry to the path. It's the beginning. Without faith, without confidence, we don't recognize the possibility of anything higher than our own narrow beliefs, our own worldview. And in this sense, devotion, it takes us out of the small-minded prison of ourself. It opens us to the mystery. It connects us with something greater. The Buddha also spoke of devotion as a blessing, as a wholesome trait of character. So again, in the Mangala Sutta, the, the first words of the Buddha in the Sutta are, to not associate with fools, to associate with the wise, and puja cha puja niyanang, to honor that which is worthy of honor. This is the highest blessing. This is about aligning ourselves and linking ourselves with the good, with something higher. So honoring that which is worthy of honor. We, we attune by aligning with that which outside of ourselves is worthy of honor. We attune to the goodness within ourselves. And he says, don't spend time with people who are foolish. Spend time with people who are wise. But then he goes on beyond that. One of the, one of the blessings of uh, wholesome traits of character is garavo, which means reverence. It's connected with humility, respect. And in the Anguttara Nikaya, there's this beautiful sutta on the eight conditions for the arising of wisdom. The Buddha says there are eight things that are necessary for wisdom to arise. And you know what the first of them is? An aspect of devotion, reverence. He says, here, a monk lives in dependence on the teacher or on a certain fellow monk in the position of a teacher. And he has set up towards him a keen sense of care and concern and regards him with affection, reverence, and respect. This is the first cause and condition that leads to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life. You just think about that and it makes sense, right? If we're with someone who's wise and we don't humble ourselves, we can't learn from them. If we don't have a sense of respect and reverence for what they might know, how do we receive anything? 
Bob Marley says, bend down low, let me tell you what I know, right? Same wisdom. So in all of this, it's, it's very important to really understand what's meant by these terms, faith, devotion, reverence. It's not a blind faith. My teacher calls it reasonable devotion. Nyaniponikatera says, it's a reasoned conviction based upon one's own understanding. So we hear the teachings, we reflect on them, we consider them. And, and we have sort of a provisional faith, a reasonable faith based on what makes sense to us. I remember the first time I heard the Dhamma, I had the good fortune of being in India, in Bodhgaya, and listening to um, a Sri Lankan teacher by the name of Godwin Samararatne teaching, and uh, an Anagarika Manindraji. And um, it was like instant homecoming, you know? Everything sort of lined up and I, I felt like, oh, finally someone's speaking the truth, like this is why I'm here why I'm alive and, and also why I ended up in India. But my mind wouldn't believe it. I sat after the talk, I stayed up, and I watched how my heart was, my heart knew. There was no question. But my mind had to go through this whole kind of series of thought experiments and steps to catch up with what my heart already knew. Because it wasn't about a blind faith, it was these two coming together and being aligned. This sense of devotion, is, it's also not a cult of personality. It's not about a person, a person or a being. The Buddha really discouraged excessive veneration to him. It's not about guru worship. Sometimes this can lead to great tragedy when the sense of reverence or devotion is abused, when it's misplaced and when a teacher... Uh, actually doesn't treat it with respect and takes advantage of the power or the trust that's been placed in him or her. And this can lead to real hurt, real pain. And it can shake the, the sadha indriya, the faith quality, and make it difficult to actually place our trust in something, which is so essential to the path. So there's a sutta where this one person, Vakali, is really, really um, desirous of seeing the Buddha and paying respect to him and Finally, he sees him and the Buddha says, why are you so enamored of seeing this body? It's just a body. And he says, he says to Vakali, he says, he who sees the Dhamma sees me. He who sees me sees the Dhamma. There's a very famous quote from the Buddha. It's not about him. He's an embodiment of truth. When, you see, when we see the Dhamma clearly, we're seeing the Buddha. Last, it's also, it's, it's not about worshiping. It's not about idolatry, right? So when we bow, I'll talk a little bit more about bowing in a few minutes. We're not bowing to this metal statue up here. Actually, in the time of the Buddha or, or after the Buddha died, there were no Buddha rupas. There were no statues of the Buddha. The Buddha was represented for the first few hundred years, some of you know this, either as an empty seat or as as footprints, as an absence and a presence, but not as, a, not as a person. It's only with the influence of the Greeks that we start having these statues. And if you look in the art history at the very, very first Buddha Rupas, they look like Apollo. 
So Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was one of the great reformers and teachers of Thailand uh, in, uh, in our age, he didn't have any Buddha Rupas in his whole monastery. I've never been there, unfortunately, but apparently when someone would come and want to give him a Buddha Rupa or want to bow to a Buddha Rupa, he would say, you want to bow to something? Go bow to that tree. You see that rock? Go bow to that rock. That's the Buddha. That's the Dhamma. There's this very earthy quality in, in the Thai forest tradition. Or Dogen, the founder of the Soto Zen, of the Soto Zen sect that uh, Rebecca mentioned last night. Dogen says, the body and mind of the Buddha way are grasses and trees, tiles and pebbles. They are wind and rain, water and fire. You should create a Buddha image or a stupa from empty space. You should create a Buddha image or stupa by scooping water from the valley stream. There's something very different than worship happening here. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we can understand devotional practice in two ways, as devotion to an outer form, which expresses one level of meaning, and as an inner practice, which expresses another level of meaning. So on the outer level, traditionally we pay respect, we honor, we revere, we we feel a sense of devotion for the Buddha and for the Triple Gem. Devoted respect to the Buddha is this sense of devotion to wisdom to awakening, to purity. The Dhamma is an aspect we're devoted to truth. Whatever that means to you, to be devoted to truth. Paying respect to the Sangha is a sense of devotion to the embodiment of goodness. Those worthy of respect, that's one of the epithets of the Sangha, those worthy of respect, our teachers We can pay respect in this way through chanting. This beautiful homage that I chanted at the beginning. Namo, I honor, I revere. Tassa, that one. Arahato, araha, means noble. Connected to Arya, Arya Satcha, the noble truths, the four noble truths. It's the same root, the same word, arahang. Tassa, arahato, Samma, complete, whole, full, fully, sambuddhasa, self-awakened. He woke up by himself. He didn't have a teacher. Bowing. Bowing is a way of expressing this quality of reverence, of being willing to learn. So you see many of us teachers up here bowing. It's actually the most number of teachers I've seen on a retreat who actually get down on their knees and bow. You might be thinking, if you're not so familiar with this tradition, what's that all about? It might be different for each of us, but for me, it's an expression uh, partly of my deep gratitude and respect and devotion to the Buddha as a person, as someone who worked really hard to awaken to these truths that we have today, to his teachings, to the Sangha, to all of my teachers, and to truth which is beyond words. It took a real while to get there, to be able to bow. I was raised Jewish. We don't bow in Judaism. Um, when I first went to Budgaya and people were bowing to these statues, I was pretty disturbed. And I said, I'm not doing that. 
no way, you know. Because in Judaism, there's the sense of, you know, if you're bowing, it's a sense of idolatry. Uh, for, for sort of the same reasons, I think, that the Buddha says, you know, watch what you're devoted to. Don't, don't set up false idols. You have the same thing in Islam, where uh, all of the artwork, the reason the calligraphy is so beautiful in the Muslim tradition is that you're not allowed to depict Allah at all. So he's only represented through, through calligraphy, through words. But in, in, in Islam, you have this also this very beautiful practice of bowing, of lowering oneself. So for me, I had, um, I had an experience. I was actually, I was in a Holocaust museum and there was um, a lintel from a doorway of, I think it must have been from a synagogue that had been destroyed and there was some words in Hebrew at the top and the translation of the words in Hebrew were, know before whom you stand, which I think comes out of the Torah. And I was just struck with this sense of reverence for the presence of the divine in any moment. Know before whom you stand. And I felt this urge, this connection with this movement of bowing, of lowering myself, of humility. There was a period in my practice um, early on, it's still early, but earlier, um, I was living in New York City, going to college, and um, I was really going through a hard time. I just felt like everything was wrong. I couldn't do anything right. I was failing at everything. You know that place where the mind is just in a, it's just no, negative. Whatever arises is wrong. No, not right, bad, failing, can't do it, not good enough. Just in this kind of place, it was awful for like weeks. And I was still sitting and practicing and I had a practice of bowing and I would light candles in my room and um, I would bow. I would do three full prostrations before sitting. And one night, all of a sudden it struck me, just the beauty, just the purity of being willing to humble myself and bow in the midst of all the difficulty. It's really powerful. I like to think of bowing as a whole body mudra. You know what a mudra is? I think Joseph used this word, like the position of the Buddha's hands here. This is a mudra or when we held our hands in Anjali, with the palms together, this is a mudra. I mean, if, if you like, maybe just try, just put your hands together like this, with all the fingertips touching and space between them. And just close the eyes for a moment and just feel what that does. It does something, right? Like all the meridians and energy points are aligned. It changes something. There's a certain connection between the mind and the body and the energy system that happens. This is a mudra. So bowing is like a whole body mudra. This is, a, this is what Ajahn Chah has to say about bowing. Someone asked him, why do we do so much bowing here? In the Thai forest tradition, you bow a lot. Every time you walk into a room with a Buddha Rupa, you bow three times to the Buddha Rupa. If there's an elder, you bow three times to the elder. Before you leave the room, you bow three times to the Buddha Rupa. You bow before meals, you bow before puja, you bow during puja, you bow after puja. There's a lot of bowing. So Ajahn Chah says, bowing is very important. It is an outward form that is part of practice. 
This form should be done correctly. Bring the forehead all the way to the floor. Have the elbows near the knees and the palms of the hands on the floor, about three inches apart. Prostrate slowly. Be mindful of your body. It's a good remedy for conceit. We should prostrate often. When you prostrate three times, you can keep in mind the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, that is, the qualities of mind, of purity, radiance, and peace. So we use the outward form to train ourselves. Body and mind become harmonious. Don't make the mistake of watching how others practice. Judging others will only increase your pride. Watch yourself instead. Prostrate often and get rid of your pride. Those who have really become harmonious with the Dhamma get far beyond the outward form. Everything they do is a way of prostrating. Walking, they prostrate. Eating, they prostrate. Defecating, they prostrate. This is because they have gotten beyond selfishness. Before these Dhamma talks, we light the candles. And what's that about? That's about puja about respect, about offering. On a shrine to the Buddha, traditionally there are three objects. There's flowers, candles, and incense. And each of these represent an aspect of the teachings. The flowers represent sila, because it said when, when the heart is pure, when, the, when our character and virtue are bright, there's, there's this pleasant fragrance of the heart. So the flowers represent sila, ethics, or virtue. And the incense, which burns at one point, represents samadhi, the collectedness of the mind. And the candles represent the light of wisdom. We can also express our sense of devotion outwardly through things like pilgrimage, visiting the holy sites, making a pilgrimage to IMS. Some of you have come from very far away, right? We see it in our, in, our, in our life also. There are remnants of it in our culture. When someone dies, we light a candle once a year, certain traditions. We bring flowers to their grave. Many Asian traditions have an altar with pictures of our ancestors, and every day you pay respect to our ancestors. It's a very beautiful practice. So what makes an act devotional? What makes bowing or lighting candles an act of devotion? How does the sacred arise? It's not that there's anything inherent about bowing or lighting a candle or chanting. It becomes sacred by the value that we give it. Through the intentionality of our action, we imbue it with meaning, with significance, so that it becomes a symbol with relevance beyond the purely physical realm. And when we engage in devotional practice in this way, at this level, something very, very powerful can happen. We enter the sacred. We enter a realm that's beyond the rational mind, beyond our thinking mind, where we're, we're no longer needing to structure and organize everything. We can let go into something vaster. We enter the realm of myth and archetype. There's tremendous power here. It's the power of symbol that accesses the subconscious. We, can, we tap into the depths of our psyche, to the mythic dimension of human experience through acts of devotion, through imbuing things with meaning beyond purely the physical. And we enter a timeless realm 
Retreat is a timeless realm. It's a mythic realm. It's a sacred realm. You're not here for six weeks or three months. That's a thought. So this kind of devotional practice arises through the heart. It begins in the heart and it expresses itself through action. So these outer acts of devotion are an expression of an inner experience or an inner attitude of respect, of reverence, that can align us with our deeper aspirations and intentions and with the potential for our own awakening. One of the great gifts and beauties of devotional practice, of ritual, of this kind of outer devotional practice is that it actually works in both ways. In other words, it expresses an inner attitude, but sometimes when the heart is dry, the outer action can give rise to the inner feeling. The effect of devotional practice can be that it lifts the heart, it opens the heart, it brings energy, it brings happiness, right? The Buddha said that first quote, that first story after his enlightenment, one lives unhappily who dwells without something to revere. So it can bring happiness. Those of you who come to the evening chanting, just think about what it feels to be here together in the room chanting the words of the Buddha, right? It's quite uplifting. You might come in feeling very blasé or down, and then you chant with other people in front of the altar, with the candles, and something happens. So this is the outer meaning of devotion. And some of us may really connect with this kind of devotion. Clearly, I do. I didn't always, but it's developed over time. But devotion also has an inner meaning. There's an inner dimension to it. A ritual has a value and a place, but as we know, this practice isn't about rites and rituals. That's why it's one of the first fetters to go, the first three, the belief in systems and rites and rituals is having efficacy for our awakening. That you can't, you can't wake up by doing something, by lighting a candle, by saying a mantra, that's not gonna get us there. The Buddha was really, really clear about this, especially in the ancient Indian context where there was so much emphasis on ritual in this sense, devotion, it's not an act of prayer. It's not venerating something outside ourselves. I think Brian referred to this at one point that one of, the, one of the great radical aspects of the Buddha's teaching was that he was saying that what makes someone holy is not their birth or it's not their, the rituals that they do, but it's, it's how we live. It's the purity of our heart. This is another quote from the Buddha. Shortly before the Buddha passed away, he said, if a monk or a nun or a devout man or a devout woman lives in accordance with the Dhamma, is correct and upright in his life, walks in conformity with the Dhamma, it is he, it is she, who rightly honors, reveres, venerates, holds sacred the Tathagata with the worthiest homage. Right, so he's saying there that if you really want to pay respect to me and my teachings, live the teachings, follow the path. That's how to revere the Buddha. So in this sense, devotion isn't about what we do. It's about how we do it. This is the inner meaning of devotion. There's an inner pilgrimage we take to awakening. 
my teacher defines devotion as the ability to clearly and fully choose from the heart rather than from the senses or the thoughts. Rather than being pulled around by what's comfortable, what's pleasant and unpleasant of our senses, rather than being scattered or confused by our thoughts and what we think we should or shouldn't do. That devotion is about being able to choose clearly and cleanly from the heart, fully. In this sense, devotion means committing, choosing wholeheartedly. In English, the word devotion has the word vote in it. So we vote. What do we place our vote for? What are we committed to? What do we say yes to? There's this other phrase in the suttas that one is devoted to wakefulness. In the gradual training, this is a step in the training, to be devoted to wakefulness. What do we say no to? What do we commit to saying no to? This is, these are the four right efforts. We say yes to presence, to awareness, to patience, to attention, to all the wholesome qualities of the mind. And we say no to that which is unwholesome, to the frivolous chatter that happens. We say, no, not going to go there. Not how I'm using my energy. We say no to restlessness, to hankering, to doubt when these forces arise in the mind. Not where I'm putting my vote, not where I'm putting my energy. The effect of this aspect of devotion, this kind of commitment, is that it makes the mind strong, it makes the mind firm. So when we practice with devotion in this way, there's that sense of of clarity and commitment. So if you're going to sit for an hour, sit for an hour. Not 55 minutes, an hour. If you decide you're going to walk for an hour and a half, walk for an hour and a half. Do it. And the mind gains strength, it gains stamina in this way. So devotion as commitment. The other aspect of devotion in this inner way is that it listens. When you're devoted to something, you really give it your full attention. If you're devoted to classical music, you really take it in. You give it a lot of time. If you're devoted to your children or your spouse or your partner, you spend time with them. You really listen to them. You open up fully to them. You're really right there. So devotion listens. It receives And it's this combination of commitment and receptivity. That's the inner realm of devotion. When we have this combination, it's it's called wholeheartedness. There's a clear intentionality and an openness. I think that this quality is represented in our teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta by one aspect of the instructions that doesn't get mentioned a lot. We talk a lot about sati, about mindfulness. We talk a lot about wisdom, about sampajanya. But some of us are also really into atapi, which is zeal, enthusiasm, wholeheartedness. And it's right there in every single refrain of the four foundations. With every practice, the Buddha says, here a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, Ardent, fully aware, and mindful. That quality of ardor, of wholeheartedness. It means that we practice with a sustained quality of, of presence, 
of intentionality and receptivity, that whatever we do, we do it fully. We do it completely. So to be devoted in this way to the practice that the Buddha offered, to pay respect to the Buddha in this way, means that we have as our pole star, as, as our vision or our aim, that everything we do in life can become an act of devotion. All of our activities can become a Dhamma practice when we do them wholeheartedly with, with this sense of reverence. There's something for me to learn here. And when we start to have the intention to live, to practice in this way with the spirit of devotion, of sincerity, what we start to see is how craving and aversion are running our life. How our blindness to our percept, to our preferences is robbing us of our life. Right? You notice how certain things we kind of want to rush through. It's not worth our time. Certain experiences, they don't count. What's that about? It's all life, right? Why do we skip over things? Why do we rush through them? How much of our life are we rushing through? Are we skipping over to get to the thing that we want, to get to what we're really devoted to, efficiency, productivity, image, pleasure? Or are we really devoted to truth, to being here fully, to living this moment? So when you do your yogi job, we can do it with that attitude of like, ah, it doesn't matter, just get it done. And how's that feel? How's that feel that doesn't matter? When you're brushing your teeth, when you're making your bed, ah, it doesn't matter. What's the effect of that on the mind? When you make your yogi job a devotional practice, it takes all of the tedium out of it. Set it up. Put your mind to it. Okay, here we go. Another practice period. Do it fully. Be present completely. Stay attuned. What's happening in the mind? Am I aware? Are there unwholesome qualities arising? Is the heart engaged? Is it present? What kind of mind states am I cultivating? Am I feeding craving or impatience? Or am I feeding clarity and thoroughness? When you can do your yogi job in this way, when you get back to your cushion or your walking path and the mind is clear, it's bright, it's ready for meditation, for continuing. So this kind of inner devotion can really help to keep the practice alive and sharp. We go through all kinds of emotional storms and hindrances attacks and doubt and sadness. But can we come back? Can we come back to our sense of aspiration, of devotion? Am I here? Am I fully here devoted to wakefulness, to truth, to beauty? Not to aesthetic beauty, but to real beauty, to the beauty of a heart that's free, that's open, that's loving. This is the inner devotion. It has that sense of this. This is what we do. Here, right here. Longpur Liam, who's the abbot of Wat Pananachat, he's uh, took over from Ajahn Chah. 
he says, one of his things, he says, practice for the sake of practice. Practice for the sake of practice. That's devotion. When we do anything, do it fully. Then it will have real beauty, real dignity. This is how we can pay respect to our teachers, to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha. So when you walk, walk with devotion. Walk with your whole heart, devoted to truth, devoted to wakefulness. When you sit, sit with devotion, with dignity. With the dignity of your aspiration, of the nobility and the magnitude of what we've undertaken. We're walking in the footsteps of great beings. And guess who's at the front of the line? Guess who's at the head of the flock leading the way? My first teacher used to say, any aspiration you have can be accomplished if you are wholehearted and you know the way. We have the great, great good fortune to be here where we know the way. It's just one moment at a time, just this. Like Joseph said, each step, mindful, ardent, alert, knowing what's happening. Any aspiration can be accomplished if you are wholehearted and know the way. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. Let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.